0: Welcome to the Liberty Block. This is Elliot Axelman. We are with an awesome guest, Mr. Jeffersonian. Thank you very much for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, Alu, thank you so much for having me.
0: You are a secessionist, so you're a fellow extremist like me?
1: Yes, that that is correct.
0: So you believe in state independence, and if we leave, you won't miss Biden.
1: That is absolutely correct. I believe in secession for its own end. Um, I definitely think that states have most of the infrastructure necessary. It's just a matter of how is it going to happen. And on my show, what I've said is it can really only happen one of three ways in my mind. It can happen peacefully, through force of arms, or as a result of an imperial implosion. And obviously, the closer to peacefully we can get, the better.
0: Yeah. And before I even get started about talking about anything else with secession... This is the first time I'm getting on the podcast, I think, since we filed our bill. We filed a CACR, which is legislation that can go onto the ballot, and if the voters approve it, it'll become part of our constitution. On Monday, Representative Mike Sylvia proposed that CACR in New Hampshire, and already it looks like it'll have four or five co-sponsors, maybe 10 co-sponsors once the uh, Office of Legislative Services gets back to us with the official language and makes it an the official bill. So that's awesome. And we wrote an article. It's already been read uh, nine, 10,000 times. And Twitter has been blowing up with secession. So I wanted to congratulate and thank Representative Sylvia and everyone else who worked on it. Uh, It was me, a bunch of other people in New Hampshire. They know who they are. A lot of really good liberty activists and secessionists in New Hampshire. And already the left is freaking out and some statists are losing their goddamn minds. And it means we're over the target because they are really, really afraid.
1: You know what's crazy about that bill? I, so before I knew about your podcast, I'd actually interviewed Representative Silvio on my show about 2 months ago. I asked him, in that show I asked him, I'm like, "Well, hey, with you know New Hampshire being the free state project, is there any sort of like big time secessionist movement?" The answer at that point was no. So it's been a huge breath of fresh air to see how fast something like this can pick up momentum.
0: Yeah, maybe right after that, Mike Silvio and a few others started working on this because for the past Roughly five or six weeks, we've been having weekly meetings with uh, me, Representative Sylvia, one or two or three other reps have come on to some shows, but it's mostly been Mike and Matt, and a few other really big liberty pro-independence activists, meeting like every week by video chat. Um, So yeah, I guess right after he said that to you eight weeks ago, maybe like six or seven weeks ago, we really started planning this. And I'll tell you, it was really, really weird. So you know how libertarians are weirdly principled? Like two principled.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) So as an ANCAP, obviously I'm a voluntarist. I'm very principled. I don't believe in taxation, not even a dollar of taxation. I don't believe in killing, not even killing one person, right? I'm principled. That being said, many times I realize we live on earth, which is a real world. And in real world, compromises unfortunately happen. And some things are practical and some are not. Now, the people, I didn't really know why there's never been an independence bill or a CACR in New Hampshire like ever no one's proposed it and a lot of the people like dave ridley and, and uh ian freeman and a few others who are very big on independence apparently the reason they never even wanted to propose a bill or ask their legislators to propose a bill was this they did the math and for some reason figured out that proposing a bill because of the staffers and the time of the hearings and the committees costs around two thousand dollars to the state to the taxpayers whenever for every new legislation every new bill And morally, they could not have a bill proposed because of their uh, request that would cost taxpayers money unless they could literally reimburse the taxpayers $2,000. Now, by my math, um, OLS, we, we don't have staffers. We have one office called OLS, and they are the staffers that craft legislation for all 400 state reps. There's no staffers in the house. So it's not like we're paying all their staffers millions. The house reps each make 100 bucks a year. OLS probably makes a few bucks, and there's only a few of them. So each new bill probably costs a total of closer to like 100 or 200 bucks than 2000. But whatever, they did their math and they said, until we can raise the money and pay back taxpayers or give the money to the state, we're not going to do it on, on principle. So that's held up this, this thing for years. I didn't even realize this because a few weeks ago on Free Talk Live, a big libertarian uh, radio show based in New Hampshire, Ian and a few others said that a few of those hosts and Dave Ridley, I believe, a longtime activist here, said they were going to underwrite this. And they were going to find a way – they raised 2000 bucks, and they're, they're going to give it back to taxpayers in New Hampshire somehow. So the other day, one of them – I think Dave told me they're just going to give out money. They're going to go to Keene and give out money to people on the streets, and that will be good enough for them to morally feel okay because they gave back money to people. I thought they were going to give it to the state, but I guess they don't want to give it to uh, politicians anyway. So very interesting. So that's why it finally happened because then Dave and Free Keene and Free Talk Live put out an article a few weeks ago saying – we, we have 2000 bucks. We're going to give it back to taxpayers. Now we feel morally justified proposing a bill for secession. So, very interesting how that came about.
1: Well, and it's like, dear God, if that was really the hangup, let's start a GoFundMe. I'm sure we could come up with two grand. <laughs> you know, yeah, they should have a started GoFundMe
0: years ago. That's a good point.
1: Yeah. It, it, like, that's not a lot of money. I'm sure we could probably have that within, you know, a couple of days at most.
0: Yeah. So, all right. Just before we went live, we started getting in an argument about, about if we were to leave the union, you said essentially we would be worse off financially in the sense that we would have to increase tax rates. Now, my rebuttal, a few things, I'm sure you're well aware, one of the big reasons why people don't like DC politicians, I'm not saying you love Biden and Pelosi, I'm sure you don't. (laughs) One of the reasons that people don't like them is the massive amount of regulations and red tape and just regulatory compliance they cost the economy in the United States is over $2 trillion per year in regulatory compliance, which is just sunk costs that companies, so if I want to start Alu's publication or Alu's gym, the Axel Gym, I would have to hire an accountant, a regulatory compliance officer, an OSHA officer, and go through to pay millions jumping through hoops just to make sure I'm compliant and not going to prison. Like someone here is going to jail, a guy who ran a CrossFit gym in New Hampshire is going to go to jail because he didn't dot one of his eyes. So just all the reg- regulations. Once we leave the federal government, forget the federal income tax, we'd all save twenty, thirty thousand dollars 30000 a year. We'd all have more money to do stuff with our companies. Every business would have another $2 trillion a year. Do you still feel the way you feel that an independent state would have to raise taxes because they're not getting federal funds?
1: Yes. So, and I, and I'll elaborate on that. So for individuals, I'm not saying that we would necessarily be worse off financially. Actually, I think to your point, we would be much better off financially because that money is not going Out to the swamp in DC, where we have to be cognizant is there are certain programs that people are not going to let go. Even so-called conservatives are not going to let go of Social Security, and that that's something I've talked about a lot on my show. What exactly are conservatives trying to conserve? They're they're trying to conserve the World War II New Deal FDR policies, and and it's it's a shame, but it's a reality. So there's going to be certain things that states are going to be expected to provide, rightly or wrongly there's going to be certain things that they are expected to provide. And right now there's actually 32 out of 50 States that get back more federal dollars than they put into it. And actually some of the biggest ones there, you got North Dakota for every $1 they pay in federal taxes, they get back $3 and 75 cents. So if you have that huge of a disparity, that, that money's going to have to be made up somewhere. And there's some different ways that you can do that. There's some people right now who are talking about sovereign wealth funds, Personally, I think those are an absolutely atrocious idea because if you concentrate that much influence and in any governmental body into the stock market, I think you're going to have disastrous results, but what's another way that a state can raise money? And I I mean, you and I know both know the state doesn't have anything other than what it takes from us. But that's what I'm saying. You know, from an individual perspective, yes, absolutely. You cut some of the regulation and you give that money back to the people. Absolutely. You're going to have higher levels of wealth. And but- I think we're both
0: right. Because if you say that our tax rate for the state increases, you're right. And I would agree with you. Because right now, New Hampshire has, has no income tax. I wouldn't want an income tax, but let's say they implemented a 5% income tax, a 5% flat tax, or even a 10% flat tax, we'd still, once we cut off the feds, we'd still have a lower effective tax burden. Yes, yes. As 30% is for the feds.
1: Yes, absolutely. So but but for the people who already live in states who have an income tax, like I live in Colorado, if Colorado were to leave, right now, I think we pay a flat income tax, I I think it's like four and a half percent. So if Colorado were to leave, they're going to have to make that revenue up somewhere. And even I would, if
0: it went to 10%, you'd still be saving. Yes. Net, yes. So yes overall,
1: that. I would still be saving. Yes. But at the just specifically at the state level, I think that would almost happen by necessity because there's only so many ways they can do it. I mean, they, they could also look at, at putting a state property tax on there. Uh, right now, at least to my knowledge, all the states I'm familiar with, that's left to the county level, but that's something else they could do. I would not want that at all, because if a state has that sort of claim to your property, you know, that, that leads to all kinds of problems. So if they're going to tax me personally, I would prefer it be the income tax because there's things I can do to lower my taxable income.
0: Yeah. Okay. Now we have to address the article we were talking about that I did send you a few days ago and you read it about a lot of different ways that states are and can increase raising money without theft. There are a lot of ways and I wrote a whole article, and I just wrote a whole book about it. Let me find the book here. Um, here you go. It's not published. Hopefully, in a few months or a year, it will be published. And and here I explain how, obviously, it's theft, but how it's not even necessary. Towards the last part of the book, I explain why it's not necessary. There are a lot of things that I explain in the book that governments are doing. I think 49 or all 50 states have a lottery system. Lotteries can bring in hundreds of millions of dollars per year. I don't know if they could increase it and make even more lotteries available to make more money, but hundreds of millions a year. States have liquor stores, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, they run some stores. In New Hampshire, the state runs 82 liquor stores. They're making hundreds of millions. Again, our whole state budget is $6 billion. So $6 billion we spend a year, around three comes from the Fed, three or more, and three comes from the state. But raising $6 billion with lottery tickets, 82 liquor stores that are great, and they make great uh, profit, and, and they have good selection, they have no tax because they are the state, so they can't tax it. So we also have advertisements, tons of advertisements on – and we can do it more. We do very little right now on state level, a tiny bit on the town level. Some town police and some town uh, medians, like a median or triangle by uh, streets, they have some floral arrangements and it says sponsored by someone. They pay a few bucks to get your ad there. We also have adopt a highway and sponsor a highway, but we can do it much more. Every single overpass, every single street, like with Domino's. Every street, every state building, every state vehicle. The state owns hundreds of buildings and thousands of vehicles. If they're all plastered with ads, like, you know, some people can buy or they can get an ad, a big decal from the back of the car and get paid, what, a few thousand bucks a month? So depending on how much it's seen or how big the ad is, if the state plasters all their vehicles and buildings, there's no way they can't raise $6 billion. In fact, I bet they could raise $20 billion and start having an excess. I know the word excess has never been said ever in history of government, but they can have an excess revenue and they can give money back to us from all that they've stolen from us and and welfare. I, I don't, I'm fine with welfare as long as it's excess revenue generated without violence, without theft. So how's that for being optimistic?
1: No, so that, that article, I actually agreed with just about everything you said in there. The, the only one, the only point that I wanted to kind of counter you on is the, the point about bonds. Because bonds inherently guarantee future taxation in one form or another. And what I find most insidious about bonds, especially the way that certain states use them, California is a really good example of this, you, you're enslaving a future generation who never had a say. And when you start talking about some mega projects like railroads, uh, passenger rail, all that kind of stuff, there. look, this is not an exaggeration. I covered this on my show too, uh, very early on. But There are some instances, like even here in Colorado, back I think it was in 2004, the voters here approved some local bonds to have a public-private relationship to get a passenger rail built from uh, Boulder to Denver. That line, not one single mile of track has been laid. It's 2021. Actually, in 2020, the agency who was designated to build this line, they came out and said it will not be in existence anytime before 2048. I've and heard like, this you story so many
0: times, from California yeah. to everywhere else in the world.
1: Right. Well, and then, well, specifically with California, I know I said uh, something about them. So specifically with California, a lot of the stuff that they do, they're using lease revenue bonds. They're using capital appreciation bonds. They're, they're awful. Like if you understand how the financials behind that work, they are absolutely terrible. And that's, that's the only point of contention I had is that if we turn to bonds to try to finance everything, I, I mean, we're just loading up our, our debt load further and further into the future. You're right.
0: Number one, that was, I'm not an expert in bonds. I'm sure you know a lot more than I do at bonds. I, I know nothing. Um, That was a late addition. The article initially was lottery tickets, um, advertisement, um, the liquor stores, and I think a few others. But I realized a few months ago, like, that's the simplest thing. Private and public, they all do bonds. now. You're right. A bond, it is saying, give us the money now, we we'll give you money back later, meaning, now the theory is it's investment, right? P- private and public, the theory with the government bond is you're investing in infrastructure, which, you know, the word means nothing anymore. But the theory is, if I were a statist, here's what I would say. I would say, you want to buy this bond, we're going to give you back whatever rate of return, so it'll be a good return on your investment in 10, 20 years. And we're going to pay for that with the increased revenue or whatever, overall productivity in a broad sense that we get from building this new road because it'll mean more travel and traffic and money in, in the economy. So that's the theory that it pays for itself. But you're totally right that that on a technical sense, it's, you know, give them money and they'll tax future generations. So you're totally right.
1: Well, but, but even, even from a practical standpoint, I'm I'm going to stick with the example of trains. I mean, I, there's no way to guarantee that you're going to get what you pay for or, or that you're forcing other people to pay for. And especially with trains, there's only two of them in the entire world right now that are profitable. So, it, I mean, if you can't make a return on investment for what you're allegedly investing in, I, I just don't think they're a good yeah, vehicle. You're right. You are with, right. With, with some of the types of bonds or do, do you know what lease revenue bonds are? I don't think so. Okay. California was using this, uh, I think it was last year in, in 2019. Uh, basically what they were doing is they had certain roads that they had actually already paid off in full. Like Those roads were fully owned by the state. The maintenance was was pretty much pay as you go. It was not having to be financed or anything like that. What the state did was they turned around and basically mortgaged those roads. They took out loans against their collateralized roads that they already owned and paid for so they could put more money into the state pension. That, that is atrocious. I, I mean, all, you're yeah. you're that is that is the literal definition of Robin Peter to pay Paul, and a, again, the the people had already been taxed for that. It it was already free and clear, but they had to make sure that their you know government cretins get their fat retirement checks. So that that's where we have to be careful uh, with, with bonds. I understand now. You say it's a late edition. I I didn't realize that as I was reading it, but that that's my thing is bonds. I I think they're. To a point, actually, I think they're immoral because the people who are paying it off are are not getting any say in it when we make that decision for them.
0: Yeah, I didn't think it's when I was writing the article. I didn't think about the grandchildren who will pay it off. I was thinking it's fine because whoever invests in it is doing so voluntarily. Whoever buys bonds is only buying it under no coercion. They're buying it. Because they think it's a good investment or because they want to invest in the government because they love government. And that's fine. too. But But you're right. It is paid off by future generations.
1: (laughs) Well, but but even even with that line of reasoning, though, that they're paying into it or investing in it voluntarily, are they voluntarily paying the taxes to enable the government to pay it back?
0: No, especially not if it's (laughs) it's (laughs) children who are not even born yet.
1: Right. Well, and and that's what I'm saying is like bonds, they they can be okay. Like if they're for small things and you know exactly what it's going to go for. But I'll give you another example, even here, like in my local community, this was uh, back in 2018, we had a local ballot measure. It was called 3A and 3B. They wanted to float some new bonds and and place a new mill levy um, on the community to allegedly make some upgrades to a school. I got a school like just right down the street from me. And so many people had the vote yes signs, and I read that bill, and, and that bill was written atrociously. And, and see, that's another thing, is people got to stop being apathetic. But that bill, if you actually went and read the text of it, it was written in such a way that it was an indefinite increase. It was saying, we're going to raise X amount of revenue each year, and there was not a sunset period. And I'm like, this is awful. But see the way that they sold it, because we get our little blue book every year that gives us you know, the third grade summary of it, the way they sold it was... Oh, for every one hundred thousand dollars of home value you have, your mortgage is going to go up twelve dollars a month. Not you know, it, it, that's a small price to pay for the sake of the children. Yep. And so when it passed, what was supposed to happen was they was gonna uh, they were gonna make some updates to the school. They were gonna get security cameras. They were gonna update some of the computer equipment, and they were supposed to get new desks and stuff like that. What actually happened was they built a relatively new subdivision over here about five years ago, and they just went and built a brand new school in this more fluent area. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Like that, that money is literally coming from my zip code, going to an area that's on probably the fringe of our zip code. And we got very little in return out of that. And the security cameras they did get, they came in actually just last year is when they were installed. So, you know, it took two years to get five cameras and that's not an, I'm not being hyperbolic. there like, literally there's five cameras. They got one on each corner and then they got one in the middle. So I'm like, wow. <laughs> so for all this revenue, we get five cameras and it it's took two no years surprise to that when
0: you give the government your money, they're going to use it in the worst ways and the slowest ways, the most corrupt ways.
1: Yes. Yes. But that that's where people there there's, you know, I'm going through like a, a pretty major political evolution. I, I was a very radical ANCAP for a long time, but I'm kind of turning away from that. To the extent that we expect incompetence out of government, yes, it's fine. But I, I've kind of come to the idea that government is downstream of culture. And if your culture fails, you, I mean, I hate to say this, but to an extent, we get what we deserve. It's only going to be as bad as we're willing to bear.
0: I agree. There's no argument here. We get the government we deserve. We always do, naturally. Yep. So right now, what what is it you're working on in Colorado? What do you think are, is the most important thing? Is it culture? Or are you working on... Independence bills in Colorado. Or are you going to move to New Hampshire? What are you doing as far as making sure that your kids and grandkids can live in a more free place than you live in?
1: So right now, the the biggest thing I've done is start my podcast. Um, I, I'm going to be honest with you. With my full time job, I was not as motivated as I should have been. I recently left that job due to differences in philosophy, we'll say. And so now I've started the podcast and for the most part, I wanted to focus on history, especially early American history, because I think we have to understand the why behind the why. But where secession comes into all this is when you go back to the founding generation and you you look at the union that was created, it was a union of states. The states had all the power. It was not a union of amorphous people in the aggregate sense. No, no, it was, it was nothing more than a collective union of states, kind of like the EU today. And I think the best that we can hope for, and, and this is why I want people to understand the why behind the why, is we've reached a point where the best likely outcome is that if we break this thing apart, we will have to accept some states are going to be god-awful. California is probably going to be a communist hellhole. Mm-hmm. we That's not our concern. If it gets bad enough, people will leave. Now, I still think we should have freedom of movement, at least between the former member states, but... You know, We we have no right to legislate for California, and that's something I've been fighting with libertarians about relentlessly over probably the past three months. Uh, If you'll recall when the federal judge overturned that California assault weapons ban, a lot of libertarians praised that. And I'm like, look, that's buying into incorporation. That's a two-way street. What happens when they do something that you don't like? And they're like, well, it doesn't matter because today it was pro-liberty, and I'm always pro-liberty. And it's like... (laughs) You know, we have to have a, a more contextualized and nuanced understanding. And who are we to legislate for California? I, I mean, seriously. I've been saying for years, 100%. You know, I used to
0: fight them also, but it's tiring fighting California. And I realized yes. on principle, morally, just let them do what they want. California, if all of them, pretty much all of them want to be totally anti-freedom, authoritarian, socialist, anti-gun, no freedom, no privacy. Let them live that way. Again, like we always, I keep saying every podcast. We always get the government we deserve by the very nature of it being the government that we have. It means that we deserve it because we we let it happen. We created it. And that's what we encourage, like you said, the culture. So, yeah, California should be the way they they are and let New Hampshire, you know, govern itself. And they should not try to rule us and we shouldn't try to rule them.
1: Well, and and think about it like this. And I, I only started thinking about it like this recently for the states who are bad. How much worse would they be and how much closer to implosion would they be if we had not tried to save them from themselves? And I mean, that, that's a very powerful thing to sit back and think about. Like, hey, who knows? Maybe there's 10 million Republicans in the state of California who gun rights. That, that would have been their line in the sand. We bailed them out. I, I mean, we bailed them out. That's true. And even with the bailouts that we've given them through judicial incorporation, they're still losing people like their policies are awful and they're going to be losing seats in the midterm elections. That's a great thing. Let's let's help them accelerate that, because if they're allowed to be as bad as they probably want to be, let them. <laughs>
0: you know? That's a great point. I don't think I thought of the uh, federal government saving bad states from even more bad policies in terms of accelerationism. But again, as, as someone who believes that the U.S. government is imploding, it's only a matter of time, and we need to balkanize. We need to break up the states like the USSR. Um, are we worse than the USSR? Probably not as bad as Stalin yet, but we're getting there. And we need to balkanize so we can have more local control. Um, I assume people would agree that you know former USSR states are now doing better now that they're ruled, not by one Stalin, but by a lot smaller, closer, more homogenous governments in their own states. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of accelerationism. So I think that the US government, the dollar, it's all going to implode, but it might happen in one year or five or 10 or 15 years if they can hold on. I want it to happen while I'm still alive and young and I can enjoy you know, independence. So yeah, let's accelerate it for sure. That's why, you know, Biden, Dave Chipman, yeah, let's let's do it all. Let's let's accelerate how quickly it implodes.
1: Right. Well, and and the position that I'm looking at it from is like, okay, look, in, in my scenario, the general government is bailing California out of bad decisions. So maybe it just kind of prolongs the inevitable. Uh, either way you look at it, because e- even if they didn't bail them out of those bad decisions, it, we're only losing California potentially. But you know that that logic can be applied to other states. I mean, there are certain things that red states do that that are not necessarily popular, and it's like, okay, let them pay the consequences for that. Let just let them pay the price. And I think too, in, in another realistic sense, the best that we can hope for, besides the states going their own way and progressing or regressing, we can actually see competition in governmental policies. And I think that's something that a lot of libertarians have yet to embrace. Um, I and I've not since COVID, but before COVID, I actually came in contact with a lot of libertarians who were specifically against secession because it's, they would actually use California as an example. They would say, well, California is going to be tyrannical and we can't allow that. And it's like, guys, c- come on, come on. Like people can still leave. But I think the best that we can hope for is to see that competition. And you know what? If the socialistic tendencies are not as bad as what we think of them in the abstract, hey, that's a real world reputation of us. And we're going to have to come up with some better arguments to address them or come up with better policies. But if they do end up being as bad as what we think they are, you know what? I don't know of anybody in Eastern Europe clamoring for the USSR again.
0: Yeah, you make a great point about competition. And again, as a capitalist, I'm the biggest fan in the world of competition. And you know, now with, with the vaccine and with all corona fascism, a lot of people are talking about the theory of a control group and an experimental group saying if everyone in the world gets a vaccine, we won't necessarily have control groups. So if everyone gets a certain issue, we can't necessarily know it was the vaccine. So control groups are obviously important, but competition in general with having 50 different states, they call them like laboratories of freedom or a laboratory for experimentation in every 50 state. So we can see which state does best, which policies thrive and are good and which are bad, but also which policies people prefer and maybe not good or bad, but you might just prefer a certain policy. I know people who are very culturally liberal. They may prefer California. I know people who are extremely culturally conservative. They may prefer Utah or, you know, Georgia. So let people have that competition. But increasingly, what I've seen over the last few decades is America, which is not really a thing, America is one big country, one big state. It's becoming one big socialist state. And that's what. Everyone in DC wants. They, they're power hungry. And the people in the states either have no spine or they eventually want to go to DC. They want a promotion. So they don't really fight it. So everyone, everyone popular in media, they love it. And there are reasons why. Everyone in, with influence, from government to media to everywhere with influence, they all want the central government to be all powerful, omnipotent, and control all the states and essentially get rid of the state borders. So we all have one federal law. Right now, federal law dictates everything from our toilets, our speed limits, our uh, health, everything in every state, education. It wasn't supposed to be like that, obviously. So we have one big state now. And that's why in a lot of my articles, I refer to the United States as the socialist state of America, state singular, because we're one big state now.
1: Well, and and we're not culturally homogenous and that that's a big problem. And that's why so many people are, are so angry at each other now. You know, California has very little in common with somebody who lives in Backwoods, Mississippi, I'm actually originally from Louisiana, born and raised down there in, in North Louisiana, way out in the sticks. I have very little in common, even with people out here in the Rocky Mountain region. Now I have more in common here than say in the Northeast, but you know, cultural differences exist and there's certain things that some people don't see as a big deal that other peoples do. But I, I do just want to touch on your point as, as far as good and bad. Yes, you're going to have people when this initially happens again, because I, I do kind of have an an inevitable excuse me, inevitability sense about all this starting to take place. When I say good and bad, I mean, we can see them rise and fall, right? So initially, yes, you might have if, if California, let's say if they ha- say, you know what, we're going to have a statewide UBI. You may see tens of millions of people flock out there initially, but if, if the principles are not sound and if the ideas are as bad as what libertarians and liberty oriented folks think, it's not sustainable, and it's, it's only going to be a matter of time before we see that collapse. Now, who knows if, if it just goes on kind of indefinitely. Okay, now we got some stuff to figure out on our end. I don't think it would. But, you know, if it did, that is a direct refutation. And it's like, all right, maybe we need to rethink this. That's the but, beauty
0: of the experimental method. Of, yes. Of experiment, do a theory, see if it works. And if it works, great. Others can see and they can emulate it, maybe. And if it doesn't work, then everyone, you and everyone around you can see it doesn't work. And we can't have that when we have one big, massive, disgusting, socialist, tyrannical state where right. states can have their own individual laws.
1: Right. Well, and and that's there's an argument to be made for that, too. And Brian McClanahan actually makes that argument a lot. He's like, you know, if we're going to have a unitary state, let's have the benefit of that and just abolish the states altogether. Now, he, he's not in favor of abolishing the states, but, you know, there is a certain point to be made for that. Like, look, if we're going to do this, let's do it all the way. Let's stop this half-assing and just get there. Uh, but I don't want that. I, I, ho- I would hope we would never go that way, because I've, I've come to be a very big fan of the state governments because you, you do have some control there. For anybody who takes the Lysander Spooner approach of voting as violence, stop being an idiot. Even if you don't consent to the system, you're still bound by it. And that's something that a lot of libertarians, again, they need to understand, is just because you you know opt out you don't actually opt out. You still have to pay your property tax. You still have to pay your income tax. There are still men with guns who will come and find you if you don't. So for your local elections, I think it's incredibly important to get out there and actually get your voice heard because at the local level, one vote literally can make a difference. Now, federal elections, honestly, I think we just need to give up on those entirely. Let it just be as bad as it can possibly be to your point, accelerationism. But at the local level where the rubber really meets the road, you still can make a difference there.
0: I agree, and I love it, and I love civic engagement. I do. I'm on the budget committee here, and I love my town. But I think equally important to voting and being involved in your town policies is educating people in your town about what absolute property rights means. And you know, we can have town council, and we should. And we can have town stuff and functions, parades, and we should. But as long as there's no coercion we have to explain to people and it's hard. And I was woken up and I've woken up a few people, but it's, it's hard and it's rare to wake someone up. But I think as important as anything is educating those around us about these are property rights. You can do certain things if it's cooperative and voluntary and consensual, but if it's not consensual, you can't use a gun to get money from people or compel people to do things. It's not okay. So I think we need to do a lot of that too. And once we have that, yes, we can have a town with, you know, people think, Anarchy, anarchism, our town is all going to be on fire. Everyone's going to kill each other. No. The only difference, our town would look the exact same. And I say at the end of my first book, The Blueprint for Liberty, I'll find that here too. The only difference with you know, an anarchist, a voluntary society would be there would be no violence, no justification for stealing from anyone. So the last part of the book I explain, what would it look like if we have total secession down from the federal government to the state, to the counties, to the town, eventually individual, and no justified violence, our towns would look the exact same, only we'd all be richer and more peaceful, less violent and happier and more cooperative. Because when your neighbor is not voting to steal money from you or to take your guns, you like them more, right? You won't resent them as much. Right now I resent some of my neighbors because my neighborhood is good, but a few of them vote to have my guns taken and my taxes raised. So that makes me resent them a little bit maybe once we have no violence and no mechanism for voting away money taking from some giving to others redistribution, then we can really have true cooperation between individuals because it's consensual. As we all agree, consensual sex is better for everyone than rape. So when there's consent, <laughs> then that's when we can have true civility.
1: Right there. there. So there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation that's going to unfold from this. So absolute property rights, uh, obvious question here how about private vaccine mandates
0: it's gonna be a long one i actually realized i only have 10 more minutes but i'll tell you my my quick story um on the liberty block our weekly podcast that we do is called the ejs podcast it's run by by uh ed jody and steve i've been arguing when i come on the show i've been arguing with ed who's who's our resident attorney and uh he's been saying that he does not like private vaccine mandates and private mask mandates from private stores, and I, being a property rights absolutist, have been yelling at him and having some strong debates for for like a year or two now, saying private property rights, any store can say no shirts, no shoes, no service. They can say only topless women allowed. They can say no Jews allowed, no blacks allowed. It is 100% within their rights. I've been saying it. He's been yelling at me. He's, I'm, you know, again, a voluntary, a a voluntarist, a principled ANCAP. He's, He's more conservatarian. And he says, no, we have to look at the realistic world, be pragmatic. And I've been yelling at him saying, no, it's on principle. Now, here's where he eventually won me over. And now I'm totally on the side. I wrote an article explaining why I evolved. Now, I totally don't believe that it's okay for private businesses to mandate stuff. And here's why. Nothing happens in a vacuum. And I, I hate saying this because it's so, it's so cliche, but nothing happens in a, in a vacuum. That private store, for instance, Walmart. Walmart right now has a mask mandate that's currently pretty soft, but it used to be pretty hard. They don't have a vaccine mandate for us, but they probably do for workers, right? So if you're an employee there, or let's say they put the mask mandate back on because the Delta Sigma Ligma variant, right? Walmart didn't do that because Mr. Walton thought it was a good idea to make a mask mandate. He did it because he's gotten number one, a few reasons. Number one, billions of dollars worth of taxpayer funded propaganda by the federal government and by Lord Fauci. So the government is involved in, you can call it soft coercion. Maybe Uncle Sam didn't put a gun to Mr. Walton's head and say make a mask mandate, but there's coercion. So the government taxpayers were involved in coercing him. Propaganda, you know, federal government, vaccines, shutting down Ivermectin, shutting down other treatments, propaganda, That's and just billions of dollars of propaganda, Mr. Walton has been convinced that COVID's the most dangerous thing in the history of humanity. That's the, the first reason why I think him making that decision is not necessarily private. It's like you lying to a girl and getting her drunk and getting consent. Eh, maybe it's not really good consent because it wasn't really made of their own volition because they were, they were coerced. Now, the second big reason is the the government and the courts have made it clear that they will grant standing to anyone who sues on the premise that they may have caught COVID in that establishment. Now, what that does is it, it coerces, it gives massive uh, justification, incentive for Walmart to have a mask mandate if it means that courts will essentially uh, give them less liability or no liability or no standing to a plaintiff who sues them, right? So currently, let's say Walmart has no mask mandate. Anyone, I can go there, get COVID in a month and say, oh, I was at Walmart two weeks ago. I might have gotten it there and sued them for a million dollars. And the courts have made it very clear. I think they're going to give standing and award me damages in the civil lawsuit for that. But if they have a mask mandate, Walmart has a much better case. They can say, no, we did everything we could, CYA, cover your butt. And you know, we had a mask mandate. It's not our fault. So because, of again, and the courts are what? Government. So the government doing all these things, and there are a lot more. The governments have have given unemployment. If your company doesn't have a mask mandate and vaccine mandate, you can quit and say dangerous workplace and get unemployment. If they didn't give unemployment for that crappy excuse, because it is a crappy excuse, if they didn't legitimize it, we'd have less mask mandates. So the government is giving money and coercion and and a lot of coercion, maybe soft or maybe semi-hard coercion to companies. And when a government is telling Mr. Walton, you have to have a mask mandate, that's no longer a private mask mandate. That's government influenced very, very heavily.
1: Well, it's something that's that's really just made my blood boil because I, I've talked to a lot of libertarians. I still run in libertarian circles who this this was their moment of falling on the sword for Encapistan. I'm like, guys, y'all are arguing for a world you would like to see and not the world we have. Yeah. But I look at it from a more, I, I guess, maybe a populist standpoint and a little bit of a pragmatist standpoint. But to an extent... Let's let's boil it down to property rights. Why does a business owner's property right over a computer or a cash register trump a person's property right to their own body? And that's that's a question I haven't gotten a good answer to yet.
0: Well, it would. I I think what makes it cloudy is the fact that the government is coercing and giving money to the to the person who owns the property to make it. I don't know if it's an issue. I would say that that when you're in their store, again, in a world of Ankapistan, where there is no government, which again, and this is what I say, when people argue with me, I say, yes, I'm arguing. I'm not necessarily arguing for passing a bill to ban vaccine mandates. I'm say, that's, I, would, I would probably support that bill. But the ideal scenario is just get rid of the government altogether. So that, that is my ideal. My ideal is the government shouldn't exist. Right. Um, if it has to exist and it coerces businesses, let's use the government. If we can't abolish it, let's use it in the proper way, at least, to minimize its negative effects. Now, now, look, to your question as far as if you walk into a store, it absent government, forget government exists, if you walk into my store, I can make any rules I want. I can say you have to walk on your hands. You can't say I'm violating your property rights. You can get out.
1: So um, that's where I stand. If I'm only shopping there, but if I'm in, if I'm your employee, I'm going to use the, the same example that you used at the start of the show with economic warfare. If I'm your employee… Otherwise, I'm doing a great job, but I refuse to get the vaccine. Why do you have the right to fire me? And I know I know the most common argument I've gotten is I don't have a right to that job. But yeah, right, right that, to
0: work, free to work in, in, a, in not, the world that goes Is government, that not a NAP right violation?
1: But is that not a NAP violation on the part no. of the employer?
0: No, at will. Everything should be at will. You're in New Hampshire, we're all at will hiring, at will firing. I can quit any day and my employer can fire me any day. And that's how the ultimate free market would be.
1: But that's still a NAP violation because you're firing them for something that you have no right to make a decision for them all. Oh, I
0: don't think I'd agree with that. No. I think a NAP violation it, it would is. be if, it it, is. if okay, shot. So,
1: so then how is it an, an economic sense of warfare for us to, say, put up a, an embargo against Mexico?
0: International stuff, it, it's all different. realm. I think international uh, trade and embargoes, and again, I'm not the expert in international policy or trade, but an embargo is considered an act of war, I think. Are you asking, should it be considered an act of war? Um, I, I mean, probably. I, again, I don't know. It probably should be. I am I support free trade. But again, internationally, because governments do exist, it gets very complicated.
1: Right. But but if we bring that down to the lowest level possible, which is the individual, if I'm otherwise doing a 10 out of 10 fantastic job on my role, and you fire me over something because I refuse to inject something in my body, I, I mean, I, I fail to understand how that would not be considered a NAP violation. I would say it's not that.
0: nice, but I don't think it would be a, a, a NAP violation. Um,
1: you're cutting somebody someone, off from their livelihood.
0: W- yes, so you're an a-hole, but it's, it's not. Okay, a, a NAP violation, I would think, would be real um, material intervention in someone procuring property. For instance, if I was going to make a deal with Ed and you got in between us and used violence, that's a NAP violation because you are stopping economic trade. But with a relationship between two people, either party is free to cut off uh, consensual relations with the other.
1: I get, we're we're probably going to have to agree to disagree there because what I've seen happen with all levels of government in most places not not every place Montana's actually doing the Lord's work they they got a, a vaccine uh, ban or a vaccine mandate ban put in put on the books now, but. From what I've seen with the government getting in bed with businesses of any size, I don't care if we're talking mom and pop, general store, Walmart, Amazon, whoever, that's not a world I want to live in. That That is not a world. Oh, I agree. I, I agree.
0: In. We just have to say, is it a cultural issue or a government issue? Culture, again, two different realms. Culture, you're an asshole employer and we'll boycott you and all that. Legal, what I say, it's a NAP violation, meaning you should be you know, prosecuted, meaning you, you've committed violence or destroyed property or hurt a person physically. I don't know if I, if it would go quite to that level.
1: Again, well, but things are complicated. Private,
0: the government exists.
1: Well, okay, but but again, let's let's take government out of it. Let's say we have our third-party arbitration that's that's ran by a private firm. Should they always unilaterally decide with businesses? Because then, I mean, no, should no corporations so. have the same rights as people. I, I, that and that's another. I, honestly, when I used to hear leftists say that. I laughed it off. I I mean, I really did. I laughed it off because I never actually really thought about it because I was so wrapped up in the ideals of, you know, Ankapistan. But I'm telling you, over the past eighteen months, this is something I've thought about so much. Is it's like do corporate or should corporations again, regardless of any size, because any size business can be registered as a corporation. Should they have the same rights as people? And for me, I, I don't want that world because there's there's so much that they can do and, and we're see we're really starting to see it now with the with the Biden mandates, but there's so much inherent corruption and unfairness in that and, and I mean I know I realize I'm sounding naive by saying it's unfair, but when you have an individual, let's say even at your you know corners corner, corner uh, convenience store. If you have an individual who loses that job and they want to try to get it back, if they go into private arbitration or in in, our, in the real world uh, through litigation, you're talking potentially months, if not years, hundreds of thousands of dollars in court costs. And who, who can compete with that?
0: I agree with you. And I think it's nuanced, but I would say that the main reason this is nuanced is because the government exists. Now, if government didn't exist, could there still be nuance in this issue? Maybe. There might still be debate because of, how big tech is private, but still so evil and so big and powerful. Yeah, maybe there might be room for nuance with property rights, but I think the main driver of it is the fact that the government is in bed with the big, all the biggest thousand companies, which in the is real the definition world, yes. of fascism and socialism. It's the government yes. running the economy because they own all the private companies. We know, you know, Saki is telling Facebook who to censor. So they really are working together in bed. So that I think that's the main reason why I've developed more nuanced. Considering I'm usually black and white principled, I've developed a lot of gray area with being okay with the government regulating private companies. But again, the ideal is government non-existing, not doing any violations of property. But if they have to exist, yes, they they should be weakened. And I would support some bills that would weaken the the government, the relationship between government and these, these companies that violate our rights.
1: Well, and so I, I know you had said we were running a little bit short on time. do we Do we have time for maybe another little ten minute session here? Yeah, yeah, probably. okay, so uh, we'll we'll go ahead and move on from that. because but it is something I think anybody who cares about liberty, they really need to start doing a self-examination. now, you you came to it from a different approach than I did, but we sort of reached the same destination. With anybody who's thinking about it, please be introspective with that because it's not nearly as black and white as we would like for it to be in our perfect world. Now, aside from that, though, um, you had said some stuff about decentralizing down to the county, down to the town, down to the individual. Um, There's actually something that one of my friends is working on. It's called the one county, one vote project that they're working on in Texas. And essentially it would be setting up a county unit system. Are you familiar with those? So it kind of works on the principle. Of, have you read "Democracy: The God That Failed"? I don't think so. No, it, fantastic book by Hans Hermann Hoppe. He basically wants the United States to be ten thousand Liechtenstein's. Liechtenstein is a very, very small European yeah, um, princedom Yeah. So that that's what he envisions. Uh, so th- this kind of this was a mutual project that she and I were both working on. Um, but essentially what it would do is you would have a county unit system and for any statewide measure, uh, and this would only apply to to the state, obviously, you, I mean, any state could adopt it, but you can't apply it to the general government. But for any statewide candidate or any statewide measure, like a new tax law, or something like that, what you would have to do is, aside from winning just a numerical majority, so let's say in California, you can't just rely on San Francisco and LA, you would actually have to win a majority of the counties and a majority of the population within each county. So that would be something I think could be a very powerful check, especially for states like Texas, who are seeing a huge influx of people coming in from these blue states. And that. so that's something that's still in the, in the works. I think she's still trying to get the website up. But what, what are your thoughts on having some sort of institutional check on power and actual yeah, institutionalized? I, mean, I love that idea.
0: I've talked about an electoral college type system within states for a long time. So I support it. There's a book written by my friend, Tom Kempf, called The Two-State Solution for America. And he explains an interesting form of like secession or like counties having a lot more autonomy. It's a very interesting book. I read it. It's available as an ebook on Amazon now. He and I are trying, um, well, he wants me to try to make it available paperback, but it takes a lot of reformatting the whole book. So I'm working on it, but again, I'm busy 24-7. But it's a great book that I recommend to everyone. Once I get paperbacks, I'll order like 100. I'll give them out to people. It explains how we can have a national divorce in in a sense without any state secession, but have a great national divorce to divide up each state so everyone could live in a county they like. So I think it's right. a great idea, too.
1: Right. Well, and, and it's something, too. I've, I've kind of come to it through reading a, a lot of John Randolph of Roanoke and John C. Calhoun, because those, those men were very ardent states' rights defenders, and they actually lived through a period where they saw the consolidation, and they actually formulated, like, this is how you can fight it. Uh, you know, now, granted, back then, uh, when they tried to exercise the ultimate authority, which was just the right to leave, uh, it didn't end so well, but it's been extremely interesting to read and kind of conceptualize like how the men who saw it happen and said, look, this is how you resist it. But it is going to take to an extent, it's going to take libertarians getting on board and saying, look, there, there will be a transitionary vehicle, whether we want it or not, there will be. And the best that we can do for now, not, not to say that in the future, we can't keep moving that window further and further in that direction, but for now the best that we can do is gain control of the infrastructure that we can use to fight it. And the states are, I mean, extremely powerful because if you had, let's say now, if you had, let's just say 15 states left. Okay, fine. You still got 35 states in the union, but those 15 states, I mean, they they could do all kinds of stuff. And I actually talked to Daniel Miller a couple of weeks ago and he was talking about how if Texas leaves, because we've already tried this whole concept and, and idea of political unions, he said Texas wouldn't necessarily want to, Officially join with anybody else and and be in their own you know and and forming a another country. Texas would just want to be by itself and do everything through treaty. Fantastic idea, and so that's where again I haven't seen so much of this since COVID. But prior to COVID, for those libertarians who refuse to let go of nationalism because it's like, well, if we can just legislate it from the top down, you're you're fighting the wrong battle. You're fighting the wrong battle because that I mean that's a dangerous dangerous two headed uh, sword or, or two edged sword. And so that, that's kind of like my final little idea there. I wanted to get that out there. And the person who's working on that, she's actually in my MeWe group. She's called Crystal Methodist. So um, get on MeWe as well if you're not already.
0: Yeah, we're on MeWe. Liberty Block's there. We got a page and I'm on there a little bit and we have some groups. There's a Liberty Block group. I think it's just a discussion group. So I'll, I'll try to put you in that one too. Good. So. Yeah, I agree with that too. Obviously, we should start bottom-up. We should start strengthening our our towns and our cities and counties and our state with being pro-liberty. And then the the more pro-liberty and strong a state legislature is and towns and counties and sheriffs, the more we can nullify federal law. The left, which has a spine, nullifies cannabis law and immigration law all the time, but the right almost never does. Finally, the last few years, we have some states and some counties nullifying federal gun laws. A little bit really just for suppressors, but a tiny bit of federal gun laws New Hampshire is the most pro-gun state. We're the number one in gun rights in the United States, but we had a bill that did not pass. It failed last year for some stupid reason. Someone said it was a bad bill because it was complicated, but uh, hopefully this session maybe will pass a bill to nullify past and present and future gun laws. That would be great. Again, so so the final thing, so I have to leave in a minute, the final thing I want to say is I think that the path – people say don't support secession, just support nullification. Yes and no. I'm fine with that because – I think that – I want full-on independence, but I think if we nullify a few federal laws, the feds will get so angry, they're going to withhold funding. They're going to sue us in court, whatever, but they're going to withhold funding, our grants. As you know, every state gets billions from the feds every year because they steal it from us. They give it back to us with conditions. So those conditions mean if we don't do what they want us to do, they're not going to give us those billions. And without billions, we're going to be in bad shape. Now, if we really have a strong spine and big balls, our state legislature and governor can say, okay, if you won't give us the money back that you stole from us, we won't give it to you in the first place meaning we're going to stop paying income taxes. At that point, once we don't follow their laws or pay taxes, that is secession. that's independence, right? So I think, and in my book, I explained that is the most likely scenario I think for independence coming about, not some big revolution or blah, blah, or whatever. Maybe a, a federal government implosion, but the most likely thing I think is just nullification, which already like 40 states nullify either gun laws or cannabis or immigration laws. So almost every state's nullifying federal laws. Once the feds, like Trump threatened California to withhold funding, but I don't think he did. But once the feds actually withhold funding, The next step would be a state with a governor with a spine, like DeSantis is the only one I know of. If he stood up and said, "Okay, if you won't give us our money back, we won't give it to you in the first place. And that really is like more than halfway to independence at that point. So that's that's what I think it's playing out. What do you think about that?
1: No, I I definitely agree. And kind of funny, uh, anecdotally funny about what you said with Trump. Not sure if he actually took that money from California. He he did, at least for their for their uh, train to nowhere. He actually took back, I think it was like three three or four billion dollars. And unfortunately, Biden's first day in office, he he reinstated to fund him. But Trump actually, he clawed it back. He's like, look, y'all haven't built a single, like you haven't done anything. I
0: was talking about ICE though, because it's a sanctuary state and they don't cooperate with ICE or CBP. And I think he said he would withhold some funds. I don't know if it was DHS funds or immigration funds or something. He said he would withhold a lot of money if they didn't cooperate and they never did cooperate. Right.
1: Well, I, I'm just happy. I mean, regardless of why he did it, I, I thought it was hilarious that he took back the money that that the uh, Obama administration had given him for that high-speed rail system. So, but no, I, I definitely I think that is correct. The more you nullify and the more you refuse to cooperate, I mean, yes, you can still stay in the union with that. Uh, Calhoun actually thought nullification was a big-time union saving measure, not not a secessionist measure, but you can use both of them very effectively. And I mean, you can accomplish either, or, you know, you can use one to be a vehicle of the other, I guess is, is what I'm saying. So I definitely agree with your take there. Um, my, my final thought, anybody listening, if you want to check me out, just go over to the Jeffersonian tradition podcast. It's on all the major podcast platforms and Alu, thank you so much for having me on your show.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. Let's do it again soon. I was going to ask, do you have a website as well?
1: Not, not yet. No, working, okay. working on a website for now, it's just the podcast and a YouTube channel.
0: So the, the podcast is the Jeffersonian podcast,
1: uh, the Jeffersonian tradition.
0: Okay, excellent, excellent. We'll we'll link to your podcast or something in the link for the show notes. This will be on podcast, and we'll upload this video to Facebook, YouTube, Rumble, and Float and Odyssey maybe.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Alu. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right.